Welcome to Door County, Wisconsin. Located in the northeastern part of the Badger State, Door County is a charming and picturesque destination, known for its natural beauty and quaint coastal communities. Bordered by Lake Michigan to the east and Green Bay to the west, the county boasts stunning waterfront views, pristine beaches, and vibrant fall foliage that draws visitors year-round. With its lavender, lighthouses, kayaking, and fishing, Door County offers a serene escape for nature enthusiasts, families, and couples seeking a tranquil retreat in the heart of the Midwest. All that would change in 2019 when a string of gruesome murders shocked the quaint coastal county. This is the story of the Door County Key Killer, an unsolved string of serial killings claiming the lives of seven residents and terrifying hundreds more. So, we invite you to join us as we take a look into these crimes, the people involved, and the theories as to who may have been behind the whole affair. Dearest listeners, welcome to Lock Door County. So, where do we start? The beginning? Right. Philip Hayes was born in 1978 to parents Esther Mathau and Ronald Hayes. Philip was a smart child, was known for his good grades and excellent successes in city and statewide science competitions. He graduated high school and continued his education at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, where he studied orthodontics. Soon he would move back to his hometown of Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, and get a job under his childhood orthodontist, Dr. Howard Haywood. After 15 years in the retirement of Dr. Haywood, Philip, now Dr. Philip Hayes, would take over the practice, renaming it Hayes Orthodontics. The only remnant of his predecessor's practice would be the dental hygienist, Hetty Lensbackel. She'll be important in just a bit. Now, Philip met his wife, Carlotta, a few years prior, due to fertility issues on their end. They were never able to have children of their own, though they had fostered a few in the past. Luckily, in 2019, they were not fostering any children, because in 2019, the unthinkable would happen. Friday, the 13th of September, 2019. Philip is found dead in his office by Hetty Lynn. Told you she'd be important. So who had it out for the doctor? What was happening below the surface that could possibly have led to his murder? And why, of all things, were his keys pinned through his lower lip? Let's start at the beginning. Thursday, the 12th of September. At 5.30pm, Paul Jean Hatterson arrives for his appointment the final appointment scheduled for that day. Five minutes later, the 26-year-old office assistant, Janine Walsh, clocks out and heads home. Ten minutes later, Hetty Lynn clocks out and leaves, leaving only Paul Jean and Dr. Hayes in the building. Finally, at 5.47 p.m., Paul Jean exits as is seen on security footage outside the building. At 7.57, according to their ring doorbell, Carlotta, Dr. Hayes' wife, returns home to find her husband is still at work. In her police interrogation, she says this. I, I don't know. It was normal for him to work late. I got home at 8, I made dinner, and then I watched TV, and then, I, I don't know, I mean, I just waited for him, I guess. And when did you start to worry? I started to worry around 11. He was never really that late before, so I called Hetty Lynn to see if she knew anything about where he was, and she suggested I call the police. And why didn't you? I had thought... You had to wait 48 hours to call for a missing person. That's a misapprehension, but we'll get into that later. So you called Mrs. Spackle. Then what? I called Jeannie, the new office assistant. And? 
She suggested I drive around and check bars. She was no use at all, but there was a man's voice in the background, so I got confused and pushed further. What do you mean? I, I, I don't know. I just thought maybe they had gone drinking together, but she said she didn't know where he was and told me that he was a big boy who could handle himself. At around midnight, Carlotta reports taking a prescription dosage of temazepam and falling asleep. At quote, 7.30 on the dot, Hedy Lynn arrives at the office, brews a pot of decaf coffee, and begins to check her own and general office emails. At 7.37, she realizes Dr. Hayes is not in the office and calls Carlotta. Upon further reiteration that Dr. Hayes never returned home, Hetty Lynn hangs up and searches the office. Moments later, in the corner of the x-ray suite, she finds the mangled corpse of her former employer, Dr. Philip Hayes. The official coroner's report described his state as this. Victim suffered severe blunt force trauma wounds to the top, back, and base of his skull. Crush wounds. There were defensive wounds on his arms, though it appears that he was attacked mainly from behind. But the detail that made the case was this. Strange. Victim's keys. Key ring opened and pierced through the lower lip. No keys remain, only keychains. No trace of blood or possible prints slash DNA to be found on the key ring. Clean puncture, likely cleaned after insertion. Victim was definitely cleaned. Points to intent. Also of note, his estimated time of death was never published. Police described the scene as follows. Bloody. An attempt was made to clean. Victim was found on the chair behind the protective wall, propped up, sitting. They were definitely moved. The murder occurred in the x-ray suite, as no blood can be found anywhere else in the office. No blood on the walls, only on the floor and victim. Also no blood was found on the chair, once again pointing to the fact that the victim was moved. Police immediately suspected that there was an altercation in which Dr. Hayes was knocked to the ground and subsequently bludgeoned to death with a heavy object from behind. At 7.46, Hetty Lynn calls the police to report the murder. Immediately following, she calls Carlotta, then Janine, and finally the mother of their first patient planned to arrive that day, Louise Richards. Notably, at 7.50, Carlotta arrives on scene, and at 8.04, 14 minutes after Carlotta, and 28 minutes after the police were called, first responders arrive. At 8.10, Detective Olivia Walnut, head of the Door County Homicide Division, arrives at the scene and addresses the crowd of onlookers and press. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad you're here, but you do not have to be. We are here. We are here to help. We are here to get to the bottom of what has happened here, and we will do so swiftly. Thank you. Now, Detective Walnut was born and raised in Sturgeon Bay. She went to school in Madison and later became a detective in Eau Claire before taking a job back in Sturgeon Bay. She would later say in an interview with Good Morning America, I was born in Wisconsin. I will die in Wisconsin. But God willing, I will leave my home better off than when I came. Now, if that isn't endearing, I don't know what is. At 8.12, the coroners arrive and begin to prep and examine the corpse. Around the same time, Janine arrives. 10.35, questioning begins in the back office, with the first person being questioned, Hetty Lynn. Following Miss Spackle, Carlotta is questioned, and finally Janine. At 11.15, following her questioning, Carlotta is brought home under police surveillance, and at 12.30, the corpse is removed from the scene and brought back to the police station. While this was happening, police began to turn their eyes on another possible suspect, or at least an important person to question, landlord and downstairs neighbor, Harry Marlin. Mr. Marlin owned multiple properties in Sturgeon Bay, but he mainly took care of the Sunshine Strip Mall, in which his apartment and Hayes Orthodontics was placed. 
Harry inherited the property from his wife's parents upon their death, and following her death in an automobile accident in 2016, Harry, already suffering from PTSD from his time in the military, spiraled into an unwavering depression, and subsequent substance abuse led to problems not only in the law, but with his own family. His daughter Rebecca began to rebel and fell into her own legal and substance troubles. It's worth noting that on September 13th, attempts to question Mr. Marlin were repeatedly unsuccessful. Police knocked on his door the first time at 10.57 a.m., finding no answer but proof that he was inside. Subsequent attempts to contact Mr. Marlin at 11.18 and 11.46 were equally unsuccessful. Finally, the fourth try at 12.10 did end in success, and Mr. Marlin agreed to be questioned on site. Another notable exploit during the investigation was the hunt for Paul Jean Hatterson. Not only was Paul Jean the last patient to be seen inside, and the last person, to our knowledge, to see Dr. Hayes alive, but also a former career criminal. In 2005, Mr. Hatterson was arrested in a violent crime, a home intrusion gone awry. Intending to rob the home of a wealthy member of the community, Mr. Hatterson was caught by a security system, and unfortunately for him, the family dog. A pit bull, fittingly named Bubbles. In his escape, Paul Jean committed vehicular manslaughter, hitting and killing a 45-year-old jogger with his car. But in an interesting twist, testament to his character, Paul Jean would turn himself in the next morning. He pled guilty on all charges and served 11 years of his 15-year sentence, getting out early on good behavior. He was released at the end of 2017. Paul Jean would be found around 2.30 that afternoon in a coffee shop where he had been working. Complying with the officers, he joined them to the police station, where he was shown the corpse. And consequently broke down. But we'll come back to that later. Around this time, it would be noted by Janine that one of the office's nitrous oxide tanks was missing. Nitrous oxide is not a controlled substance. Unlike, for example, heroin or cocaine, it's entirely legal to possess as long as it's for a legitimate purpose. Nitrous oxide is a dissociative anesthetic and has been found to produce disassociations of the mind from the body, a sense of floating with distorted perceptions. It's a powerful medication very often used in the medical field, and even more so in the dental field, but also as a recreational drug. For those reasons, the police had even more of a suspicion that Dr. Hayes' murder was more than a possible crime of passion, and even possibly a robbery gone wrong. So... Was it a crime of passion? A robbery gone wrong? Who did the police suspect? And more importantly, who did they leave out? All of this and more to come. Welcome back to the first episode of Lock Door County. Before the break, we learned the timeline of events and a bit of information about the involved parties in the murder of Wisconsin orthodontist Dr. Philip Hayes. Now... Let's dive into the police's main people of interest and their possible motivations. But first, a revelation that sheds a new light on the case. Understatement, but sure, Dr. Philip Hayes was more than just an orthodontist. He was, as we've said, a family man, but... Yep, he was having an affair. As one does before being murdered. The question is, did Carlotta know? (laughs) 
As you may remember, the second call placed by Miss Hayes to inquire the whereabouts of her husband was to Janine Walsh. And she reported hearing a man's voice over the phone. A man's voice she was sure belonged to her husband. But Carlotta argued differently. I had a feeling, but I wasn't sure until last night. What does that mean? When I heard his voice over the phone with Janine, they were giggling and laughing, and I only ever heard him like that when it was the two of us. Yeah, I got the phone call, but the noise you heard in my apartment, I was with, well, a friend. You know how it is. So, did Dr. Hayes sneak out, avoiding the cameras, or did Janine undertake the covert visit? If he snuck out, was he alive or dead when he returned? There is a second door. The first break in the case. There is a back staircase that goes into the back hallway behind the shops. Yes, that means he could have left. The existence of that back staircase meant that not only could the victim have left the scene of the crime, but others could have entered, a fact that Mr. Marlin tried to underplay. Was this the method used for one of the other suspects to make their way into the office unseen? And why was Mr. Marlin so sure that the killer was Mr. Hatterson? It's the ex-con. I saw him leave all shaky. He was in jail for a violent crime before, which means he could have done it again. Police noted that Mr. Marlin was awfully and undeniably desperate, though they were unsure why. He seemed anxious and frantic. Something on display in his answer here. I had nothing to do with this, I, I swear. I was home all night. Me and Becky were home all night. Smooth operator there. So what could he possibly have been trying to hide? Police listened closely and narrowed in on a possible slip. Me and Becky were home all night. Rebecca Marlin was 17 years old at the time, a high school senior with plans to study chemistry. Her interest in chemistry did, however, extend into her extracurricular activities, as Rebecca had two prior misdemeanor charges brought against her for underage drinking and possession of a controlled substance, oxycodone. While, again, possession itself is no crime, the intent to sell a Schedule One or Two controlled substance like oxycodone is a felony, often punished by imprisonment from 5 to 40 years, and a massive fine. But as she was underage and had connections in the police stations, Miss Marlin got off with a slap on the wrist. In turn, she was asked to give the name of her source, from which she argued that she had produced them from her late mother's medicine cabinet. But if you had asked anyone at Hayes Orthodontics, they'd tell you that she had acquired them from the medicine cabinet in their office. A week after Rebecca's arrest, a woman by the name of Lucy Guise was let go from the practice after it was found that she had been stealing controlled medicine and selling it to some of the local youth. She was later arrested and sentenced to 26 years in prison. Dr. Hayes himself had previously admitted on record that he suspected Miss Marlin of breaking into his practice and making off with various substances. Yes, he suspected her of stealing medications. What do you want me to tell you? He informed her father didn't fix anything, though. Could Rebecca have broken in to steal medications and bumped into Dr. Hayes on accident? Could that meet-cute have soured and led to the doctor's death? And then the toxicology reports returned. The victim had trace amounts of nitrous oxide in his system. He had been under the influence of laughing gas at the time of his murder. An hour later, Rebecca Marlin was brought in for questioning. There were no records from her interrogation, as it was handled entirely, to quote Detective Walnut, off the record. But whatever she said gave police exactly what they needed to get a warrant to search the Marlin residence, a warrant that would reveal an important truth about the case. 
but not the truth you may have been expecting. Inside the Marlin residence, police found little to no damning information, but inside the back hallways, they found a loose gold key. The key to the Hayes family home. However, it was not Philip's key they found, but Carlotta's. You may be wondering what this says about the case. Well, Harry Marlin explained that they have the hallway cleaned professionally every Wednesday night. If her key was there, then she was, after Thursday. This places Carlotta at the scene of the crime after Hetty Lynn and Janine left, opening up an opportunity for the woman scorned to strike. Now you may have been assuming that they would have found the tank while searching the Marlin home. They did. The next morning, one town away, one Mr. Stephen Black, the owner of a fine wood shop and joinery, called to report a strange metal object in his dumpster. On arrival, police confirmed it to be the missing tank. Sadly, it had been cleaned, but a small dent at the bottom proved it to be the murder weapon. So, was it the wife scorned, the side piece, the ex-convict final patient, the drug thief downstairs, or even possibly her father, who would have done anything for his daughter? We'll return to summarize the suspects and go over theories after this break. Welcome back to the first episode of Lockdoor County. Before the break, we learned the timeline of the events and a bit of information about the involved parties in the murder of Wisconsin orthodontist Dr. Philip Hayes. At the core of this case, we have six major suspects, Carlotta, Janine, Paul Jean, Rebecca, Harry, and Hetty Lynn. So, let's break each one down by their means, motive, and whether or not they had the opportunity. First off, Carlotta Hayes. She had the means and the motive to kill her husband, but possibly also the opportunity. Her key in the hallway implies that she either was in the building that night or is being framed for having been there. She may or may not, but likely did know that her husband was having an affair with his employee and thus would have a reason to confront him about it. He was also notably on a degree of laughing gas when he died, which could have led to his defenses being lowered or, perhaps, him being more volatile and her acting in self-defense. At the court, Carlotta Hayes had the means, the motive, and most definitely an opportunity to kill her husband. But then we argue the reverse, and there's a chance she didn't know about the affair. There's a chance that she was never there that night, and that it was, in fact, her husband who left the key in the hallway, or the killer having stripped it from the key ring they believed to be his. Important to remember is that it was, in fact, his key ring pierced through his lip. There's also a chance that Carlotta could have walked in on Janine and her husband in an act, and in her own revenge set out to kill. She did argue over the phone that she believed to have heard her husband and Janine. Perhaps she went to the office and found them. Janine left, and the two got into a fight, ending with Philip's death. Then again, it is also a very far-fetched idea that the affair would have pushed Carlotta to and over the edge, and drove her to murder. Assuming her story is true, she would have had arrived shortly before midnight. As we have no estimated time of death, we can gauge the scene and where or when events could have occurred. But Carlotta was able to convince the police of her innocence, and with the help of Miss Backle, who said that her phone calls to Carlotta showed no signs of anything untoward. Next is Janine Walsh. Janine is the other woman. She knew that he was married and was moderately close with his wife. We've seen hundreds of times in these types of cases how jealousy can get the best of people. Is there a chance that Janine let her jealousy get the best of her, and in a moment of raw emotion, turned on her lover? 
She had a key to both the main and back door. In the past, there was evidence of Miss Walsh sneaking into the office to have rendezvous with her employer. Could this have happened again, and could it have gone south? The biggest deal with Janine as a suspect is that there's very little evidence to support her being there, or doing anything for that matter. There's nothing that ties her to the murder other than a significant opportunity and a strong possible motive. Definitely not enough to convict. Then we have Paul Jean Hatterson. Despite his violent past, Mr. Hatterson has turned his life around and has always shown a moral core. After his hit and run, he turned himself in and implied earlier when he saw the victim's corpse as he broke down. Police report him screaming, quote, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. That was not me before frantically leaving the premises. While his wording is a bit suspicious, his shocked expression showed the police that he was innocent, convincing Detective Walnut and her team. While he is the suspect with the strongest opportunity, he's the suspect without a motive, which in all of these cases is the true coloring. Then there's Rebecca Marlin. Means, check. Motives, check. Opportunity, check. Rebecca had a history of breaking and entering into the office and stealing illicit substances. She had a clear-cut opportunity and a stunning lack of an alibi. I mean, she had one, but it was just, I was at home watching YouTube on my phone, so you get the point. She was on her high school track and field team and spent an intriguing amount of time at the gym, meaning she could have easily overpowered an aging and stagnant middle-aged man. As a possible addict, she has a clear motivation to have panicked and possibly killed him in an attempt to cover up her own tracks. And besides, who would suspect her of killing him? Finally, Harry Marlin. Means definite. Mr. Marlin would have done anything to protect and hold on to his daughter. Motive. Either direction, he has one. Option A, Dr. Hayes planned to report him and Rebecca to the police, and murder was the only surefire way to keep him quiet. Option B, Rebecca screwed up and he cleaned up her mess, albeit poorly. And finally, opportunity. He refused to change or even install new locks on the back door to the office. He knew how to get in and had the keys to do it. Plus the know-how of the building, security system, and cameras to go about everything undetected. Though nothing explains the piercing through his lip. And for investigators at the time, nothing would. Until about a few short weeks later. It would be then when investigative efforts were pulled away from the Hayes case. When another local business owner would be found dead in his pool, stabbed in the back by a saber with his key ring placed on top. Sadly for Mr. Hayes, his murder would be overshadowed by a string of six similar to come. And sadly, as the first victim, little else is known about his death. Which brings us to the end of this first episode of Lockdoor County. Please join us next time as the case continues. A powerful family, a powerful secret, a possible link, a drug bust, and an FBI investigation. All of this and more to come on the next episode of Lockdoor County. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Gonsbach Productions Presents Truer Crimes, Lockdoor County. The story, all names, characters, and incidents portrayed in this production are fictitious. No identification with actual persons, living or deceased, places, buildings, and products are intended or should be inferred. Theme music track composed and mastered by Carlos Ortiz.